The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. Okay, so this is Truth Exchange Conference 2021 talk on racism race. Let me pray, then I'll read two passages and and just get right into it, talking about racism, okay? So let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for the truth of your word that it addresses all manner of issues, everything within the realm of creation that we might experience. So I pray that your kingdom would come and your will will be done in this even talk about an issue that tends to uh, create lots of passion and emotions. And just be present and use it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Two passages, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I'll read 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the very last verse of the love chapter. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In his book, Rumors of Another World, Philip Yancey writes of something uh, that happened in South Africa. Um, He writes about when the horrors of apartheid ended officially in South Africa, newly elected President Nelson Mandela appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he wanted to avert the kind of revenge that oppressed groups, once they kind of gain power over their former oppressors, uh, the revenge that they often carry out against those groups when they gain control. So he wanted to avert that. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called for police and army members to come openly, confess guilt for their unjust atrocities to the accusers. If they did that, they would not face any criminal charges. So it was a kind of a restorative uh, uh, justice, I I think it's called there. So at a hearing, uh, Vandebrek, who was a policeman, confessed to shooting an 18-year-old boy, burning him, and turning his body like barbecue until there was no evidence left. And eight years later, Vandebrek and other policemen returned to that same house, took the boy's father, bound him to a woodpile, poured gasoline on him, and ignited it while his wife was forced to watch. The judge asked the now elderly woman to respond with what she wants. She wanted Vandebrek to go back and collect the dust from where they burned her husband so she could give him a proper burial. Then she had a second request. Quote, Mr. Vandebrek took all my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vandebrek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. A group of people in a courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace as this older woman made her way to the witness stand. But Vandebrek did not hear the hymn. He was so overwhelmed, 
He fainted. Now, the only thing more striking than the great evil and injustice against this woman is her grace-filled response to it. She wasn't playing the part of the genteel black martyr, as one journalist des described recently deceased Hank Aaron. She was being deeply Christian in a way that contradicts currently prevailing constructs regarding race. Now, considering this through a modern identitarian lens, we would highlight certain features about this woman's person, wouldn't we? She's a grieving wife, a mourning mother, oppressed black person, a woman. There's even an intersectional matrix here, right? She's a black woman over and against white males who persecuted her. And yet, none of those identities drove her response to the injustice. There wasn't any structural or cultural definition that conditioned the way she redressed real racial grievance. It was her Christian mind, something that was hers in Christ, that drove the direction of her response. She didn't see her truly victimized status as something to be grasped or as one commentator uh, put it, a thing to be held onto for advantage. Among the communion of saints, race isn't the kind of variable that determines how we interact, react, or live and move in the world toward family, friend, or foe. There is no such thing as racial determinism. The drivers of behavior are not found within the structures of ethnicity and race, but in the direction of our allegiance, either for Christ or against him. This allegiance is made known in actions motivated by the cardinal theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, not the critical sociological vices of doubt, cynicism, and suspicion. Now, the notion of race has been on shaky, shifting ground throughout our whole nation's history, and even, I would even say, larger Western society, perhaps even broader. And whether we're talking about race as a social construction, i.e., uh, quote, you know, there were no black people until they got off the boat in America, right? There was no white or black until there were people thrown together and began to define it that way. So whether we're talking about social construction, as race or race as self-construction, the quote, I identify as black or I identify as Latino. And if you recall Rachel Dolezal, who identified as black, though she was a white woman, right? So whether we're talking about either of those, social construction, socially constructed understanding of race or self-constructed, there have been various competing narratives and understandings of race that vie for cultural dominance. And I would say most of that history can be reduced to two broad streams. One, race consciousness, and two, transracialism. Two confessions of faith, basically, around race that have kind of, uh, that I think most other views can be placed into. So the race conscious narrative that arises from the historic fact of the racial disenfranchisement and marginalization of various ethnic groups. And in its present form, it strongly asserts that racism 
is baked into the very DNA of a country like America. And it even asserts that the protection of slavery, of race-based chattel slavery, was a fundamental reason for the American Revolution. Many who ascribe to this point of view say that slavery is one of America's founding principles. That's uh, like the 1619 Project, if you're familiar with that. They, uh, um, Hannah Nicole Jones actually said that to much consternation. Race-conscious social scientists say that race functions as a foundational ground upon which various social benefits are granted or withheld. On this view, color, beyond mere citizenship, has unique cultural currency. So groups like Blacks, Indians, and others have a distinct, particular, and meaningful identity apart from simply being American. There is a, quote, double consciousness, if you know that term from W.E.B. Du Bois, a sense of being both American and you insert the racial designation that one carries around with them and which influences all of life. Society is seen as a mosaic of particular hyphenated groups that are more salad bowl than melting pot in terms of how social cohesion is experienced by the groups. Race consciousness undergirds the Modern movements like uh, Black Lives Matter, which is really a neo-Marxist front group that recasts class struggle in terms of race conflict. And the concerns of critical race theory, what we're talking about, uh, it's being derivative of European critical theory or the kind of American-style branded critical race theory by Derek Bell and others here, right? Uh, and the various forms of racial identity politics would fall under this as well. And included among racially conscious groups would be ethno-nationalists, whatever stripe, black, white, you name it, or individuals who believe that race, however we're defining it, has meaningful, perhaps even determinative value in social relationships. A well-known proponent of race consciousness is W.E.B. Du Bois, who I mentioned before. He labored for a specific race-driven political enfranchisement program and was one of the founders of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So that's the um, race conscious narrative, just a little bit of its history and, and iter various iterations of it. The Southern narrative, the transracial narrative, takes its starting point from universal realities that are common to all men as opposed to the particularities shared only by members within ethnicities and groups. Quote, all men are created equal, right, might be the sociopolitical creed. Though adherents recognize that equality has not been uniformly acknowledged, that it is an aspirational truth and a value which the nation has steadily moved toward as it attempts to form a, quote, more perfect union. So in this sense, the actual codified liberties articulated in 1776 are more defining of our sense of identity, sense of race, however you want to put it, 
more defining than 1619, the year that African slaves arrived on the shores of the United States. Transracialism insists that we see one another as individuals endowed with the same human rights and obligations given by God, not as members of a group or race given rights on the basis of membership in an identitarian group. We are all equal because we are all human. And on this perspective, things that transcend race, hence transracial, like character, cultural development, Christian faith, these things are more fundamental to identity than race. And of course, one thinks of Martin Luther King's famous phrase, and it was actually a phrase which he uttered more than once. This wasn't just a one-off thing he said. And it embodies the transracial vision well. When he talks about how he longed for a time when his children would, quote, not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, right? That's transracial as it gets. If you have a transracial view of relating to others, you will say and affirm all lives matter, right? Full stop. Not as an antithesis to the sentiment black lives matter, but as a prior condition to it. It's on the basis of all lives mattering that we can say that a black or any other colored life matters when it's taken. The foundation of solidarity is in the notion that all lives matter. Therefore, any and every particular life matters. I would say the exemplary embodiment of transracial concerns, historically speaking, was someone like Booker T. Washington. Now, he wasn't unaware of all the racial discrimination of his day, despite what people want to say about him. He was a recipient of much of it. But he saw transracial concerns, like economic knowledge, hard work, moral restraint, all things that are universal realities beyond race, as much more important to human and even racial progress than race-specific or race-driven political enfranchisement, right? Cultural development, a universal aspiration, was to be preferred to specific racial uplift initiatives for Black Americans. The program preferred by W.E.B. Du Bois and his Northern Black bourgeoisie, if you're familiar with him. Now, in terms of actual practice, these two visions are not so much antithetical as they are poles of emphasis. The racially conscious rarely have denied the need for universal virtues or learning. They simply didn't preach what they themselves often practiced, perhaps eschewing a sense of respectability politics or whatever. And transracialists haven't ignored the particularities of racial disparity and the very real history of racial discrimination in the nation and in the church. But, so in practice, they're not very different. But in principle, these two approaches are very much antagonistic toward each other. Race is either going to be a factor in how we relate to one another, or it isn't. Race matters, or it doesn't matter for how we engage and treat one another. So we have to really make a decision about that. And 
this divide concerning how to handle race is a very live question in many evangelical churches and organizations right now. And it's dividing Christians increasingly so, it seems. Now, while there are many things that can be said about ethnicity and identity from Scripture, I would point to two foundational notions that should orient how we relate to one another, how we understand relating to one another uh, at the most basic of levels. And I would say these two notions apply not just to Christian to Christian relating, but to just broadly human to human relating. And those two notions are neighbor love and image of God. Scripture commands us to, to love family, friend, foe, you name it. It's the second great commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when scripture commands us to love, it's calling us to the highest and most central virtue in human relationships. Faith, hope, and love abide but love is the greatest of those graces. Love is the summation of the law in its social dimensions. On it hangs the second table of the law. It really is the heart of the matter. But notice too that the command to love has two parts, the lover and the one loved. A subject who loves and an object of that love who receives that love. So when the question is posed, who is the object of our love? The same kind of love with which we are to love ourselves, or we do love ourselves. The answer is your neighbor, the people in proximity to us, family, friend, or, or enemy, right? Our neighbor is owed our love by virtue of being nothing more than our neighbor. The greatest command, one that requires complete giving of oneself, is grounded in a very basic abstract condition, neighborly proximity. And that is a transracial concern. If someone is near us, we are to love them. Of course, there, there are orders of love that mandate we make distinctions within proximate uh, people to be loved by us. For example, a parent may love all the children in their child's third grade classroom but they will love their own third grader more than they love those other third graders, right? And that is right. We know that's right to do. But degrees and orders of love still are expressions of love. So when we ask the question, to whom should I show kindness, respect, and love? The answer is the person nearest you. The answer doesn't contemplate or bring into consideration one's race, or any condition beyond an abstract neighbor who is then made concrete and real in actions of love. It is what is common and universal among men that we exist in proximity to others, which constitutes the basis of relating in love. The particularities of persons do not matter at all, and no theory of race can improve on this. Among other things, neighbor love is truly, truly colorblind. 
it has no race. As far as the law of love is concerned, when people see you, whatever your race is, they are seeing a person, a personal neighbor to be loved, not a critical theory to be applied. So that's neighbor love. Here's the other notion, image of God, the thick theological notion. Multiple times in scripture, the scriptures de describe mankind, individual people, as made in the image of God, right? And this claim not only tells us something anthropological, like what is man, but it also tells us something social, how men are to relate. You see this in uh, Genesis 9, uh, that says, verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. The implication is that humans, unlike animals and other living things, are to be treated with the utmost, utmost life-preserving dignity and regard. In fact, so imbued with value are humans that the intentional taking of the life of another image bearer subjects the one who takes that life to the most severe punitive measure, capital punishment. And the Apostle James makes the point even more strongly when he's discussing the power of the tongue in his little epistle. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. He points out a moral contradiction in, in us, that it is completely incongruous that a man might use his words to bless God it also used them to curse one who has the semblance of God, one who is made in the likeness of God, right? There's a strange contradiction between those things. How could you bless God and, and curse one made in the image of God? So you see in both Genesis and in James, those references, the rationale given for refraining from killing another human being in Genesis and cursing another human being, a fellow human, in James, the rationale given is man's divine image-bearing status. It is not what is particular about a person, but what is universal, the image of God that grounds our social relating. Right? And this is as far from societal arrangements that afford benefits or rights on the basis of some racial identity marker or some prepackaged victimized group status, as can be, right? Our individual identity and significance as people stamped with the semblance of God far exceed any immutable physical characteristics we may have. We are, as the psalmist says, as human beings, we are crowned with glory and honor, befitting ones bearing the divine image. Knowing and relating to one another on the basis of racial particularity, right? Which is a kind of racism, aims obscenely too low. Because our treatment of one another proceeds from a common and universal fact, or at least it should be, a universal fact about each other, that we are created and made, formed in God's own image. But notice something more about, a little deeper about the image of God. 
seeing humans, seeing people as imago Dei or made in God's image actually presupposes that you have some knowledge or notion of God himself. There is no right understanding of the image of God without an understanding of God, the one in whose image we are actually made. And that requires a knowledge of transcendent truth beyond what we merely see. People are not merely color-coded mortals. You have never talked to a mere mortal, C.S. Lewis reminds us in his wonderful little sermon, The Weight of Glory. Right, So dealing with and relating to them requires more than engaging with a clump, a clump of flesh. You're not talking about just some physical being who dies when we're talking about human beings when we relate to them. It actually requires a recognition that people are raced, physical, yes, and gloriously transracial, image bearers of God. There's something that goes beyond just the physical that you see when you're dealing with another human being. So it should not be surprising that the various ideologies and systems that group and treat people on the basis of physical characteristics like race and related uh, categories, that they espouse, those systems espouse an atheistic materialistic view of the world. You reject the creator and you will soon worship and serve the creature and creaturely attributes, right? The unique and observable features of mankind will be extolled and more highly valued than the qualities which are shared by all humans as belief in man trumps belief in God who created man. And there's so many things we can, can, can say about that. But let me offer just a word of hope speaking directly to mostly Christians um, about how we just proceed then, right? So the issue of race continues to be a complex and difficult issue inside and outside the church. The ongoing deconsolidation and fracturing of the larger republic and society finds expression in churches as whole communions are arguing over the place of racial ideologies like critical race theory and believers and individual believers and churches abandon perceived racially inhospitable denominations in favor of more receptive ecclesiastical pastors. I could think of a number of examples of that fairly high profile right now. Other churches and institutions struggle with how to negotiate and address genuine race-oriented concerns without losing theological integrity and capitulating to the enormous pressures of the woke zeitgeist, I might call it. And they're doing so with varying degrees of success and failure. You can think of a number of examples. So I think all of that can be certainly discouraging to the church. But we don't lose heart. The Christian is a prisoner of hope in this as, as well as other things. We know how all of this ultimately turns out. The Church of Jesus Christ, right now, will be the church triumphant gathered around the throne, singing to the lamb that was slain. And that church will be an innumerable congregation from every nation, tribe, people, and language. A genuinely multi-everything church. I love Isaiah's words about the ministry of Christ. 
he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The eschatological or ultimate things, the eschatological hope for the church in the future informs our present ethics in the church in the present. Right? Knowing the end, we confidently refuse to bow the knee to the racially divisive spirit of the age and any ideas or theories that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. But in rejecting the racial discourse of the world, we don't reject engagement of the issue of racial division. We simply reject engagement on terms set by God-defying social world. Look, the church has been at this for 2,000 years. We have a canon of, of language and theology uh, that informs, and we, of course we have the Holy Spirit, that informs how we are to relate to one another. So we don't really need to take up the conceptualities and ideologies uh, of our surrounding world, right? In order to address these things, they may as illuminating as they may be or may not be, right? So we courageously dive in without fear and move toward one another, speaking truth and love. And we keep speaking. Keep lovingly pursuing one another across painful racial and ideological lines, embodying all the reconciling grace available to us in Christ and by the Spirit. When we fail at it, as we inevitably do, we get back up and try again. You know, how deep is our love? Not moving toward one another is not a Christian option. So let's keep having race discussions and honest conversations and interactions, but let's do more than conferences and symposiums and let's move them from the lecture hall to the banquet hall where the raw, real face-to-face koinonia fellowship actually happens. And as a friend noted, one of the many chasms that manifest in race discussions is one group often treats race like an epistemological question to be answered, right? While the group to whom the question is addressed experiences race as an existential and eth ethical crisis in need of urgent solutions. You often have this whole completely different approach to issues when different races sit down and discuss and talk about it. But unity is a Christian fact and a reality. We don't pursue racial reconciliation. We are reconciled in Christ. It's already happened. We are brothers and sisters. We don't try to make ourselves brothers and sisters. We just have to live it out. But it is a delicate and easily disturbed kind of state of reconciliation, isn't it? There are no facile programmatic ways to ensure it. But believers who have the mind of Christ and look to Christ whose self-donating movement toward us is something that enables us to give, not grasp or hold tightly ourselves to one another across all the lines that divide. It's a slow but sure path. I love something that Chris Rice and Emmanuel Contongale wrote, I think at the end of their book, Reconciling All Things, A Christian Vision uh, for Justice, Peace and Healing. Um, it struck me, and I, and I, I like uh, some of the truth here that we could extract. And let me close with just this quote from that book. Transformation 
as the deeper vision of enemies and strangers becoming friends and all becoming God's companions takes time, a long time, more time than we have. The work is never done in our lifetime. Here and now, and in the meantime, we take the time to do it well. We choose to go far, not fast, taking the time to travel with companions. We do what we can by giving what we have with love and excellence, even if our best is given to those things that seem small. For we have learned the significance of washing the feet of the one who will betray us and of going out of our way for the stranger by the side of the road. So may God help us to keep at it, going far, not necessarily fast, uh, embodying these truths that are lasting, not ephemeral and fleeting and temporal, and really living out this incredible uh, vision of reconciliation, of, of different people coming together to be one, uh, to be brothers and sisters in and through Christ, who has united us to himself and to one another may help us to do that.